0: Pater noster, Domine, stellae, Benedicta tu mundi erumus. Et Benedictus fructus ventris tu iesus. Santa Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus. Nunquam tu morar multis nostrae. Amen. In nomine Patris et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Brethren in Christ, laudate to jesus christus in sequela. This is Timothy Flanders at the Meaning of Catholic. Jesus is King. Today is Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas, everyone. I am so excited. It's what a wonderful time of year. The uh, I got some time. I was able to pray some of the office this morning with the, the special office of the Vigil of Christmas. It's just a beautiful time liturgically. It's a beautiful time spiritually. And I pray that you and your family gather all the graces given by almighty god in this gracious time this time of grace this uh we've spent advent crying out to the lord come and deliver us and now we celebrate christ coming into our world to deliver us and especially in our time it advent uh really gave me new meaning as i as i pondered and struggled through all the difficulties of church and society and all the uh, darkness that's there. Thank God that we can celebrate Christmas together. Celebrate this this time uh, in the midst of darkness, both literal darkness in the winter time, spiritual darkness in the church and in society. But we can have this hope of Christ. So this show, we're we're going to introduce the the Christmas tide Bible reading season that is coming up. This is the um the annual bible reader that we are going through we are going through in our fellowship of St Anthony that is our our lay sodality of prayer and reparation we offer up penances for priests and seminarians and as an optional addition we also do this annual bible reader so in the advent season we read through the prophecy of Isaiah and the Book of Wisdom, the Bible reader, I should say, is adapted from the traditional office of Matins, and uh, if you follow the link below, you can get a free copy of this whole Bible reader. Uh, if you want to be a part of the reading group, then you have to be a guild member, so you have to go to patreon.com slash of Catholic, become a guild member, so Patreon member, uh, $5 a month, or whatever you can afford, and then you can have access to the Fellowship of St. Anthony. Uh, or you can also donate, meaning slash donate. Or if you can't afford that, you still want to be a part of it, just contact us, meetingofcatholic.com, slash contact. So, the annual Bible reader, but if you don't want to join any of that, you can always get this whole reader for free and create your own group. Just cl- follow that link below. So, the, tonight, uh, or I'm sorry, the Advent Bible reading is uh, Isaiah and Wisdom, and then... So going through those things, that's already Isaiah is already appointed in the church's liturgy, and then this because this Bible reader goes through the entire Bible, we had to add the Book of Wisdom uh, because that's not included in Matins; it's just included in a lot of different versicles. Uh, The final chapters of Wisdom are used in the church's liturgy for Christmas, when the uh, the the final chapters. I think it's the final chapter of Wisdom chapter 19, 18 or 19, where it says that thy, when all was quiet, thy word le- leapt down from heaven. And we really see in the book of wisdom this Logos tradition of the later Jewish faith, uh, the pre-Christian Jewish tradition, post-Second Temple, but pre-Christian. And that's why the book of wisdom is written in that period, and we really see that Coming out in these final chapters of wisdom, and that's why the church li- uses them in their Christmas, lit- Christmas liturgy. So now, in in the traditional office of matins, uh, you have so first of all in, on the Christmas Eve liturgy, the epistle itself in the Roman Rite for Christmas Eve is Romans chapter one, and then the office of matins begins Romans chapter one and, and reads through the entire all the all the epistles of Saint Paul. Through Epiphany tide, and uh, one can see the reason readily when the fact that Epiphany is the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles, and so it makes sense that the Church reads the what what the Church calls the Apostle to the Gentiles. This is the uh, the Collect on Sexagesima Sunday, the second Sunday of the pre-Lenten season. It it appeals to the Apostle of the Gentiles, meaning Saint Paul. So St. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. As he says, I believe, yeah, the epistles of the Galatians, he discusses how St. Peter is the apostle to the, the circumcised, and St. Paul is the apostle to the uncircumcised. And so since Epiphany Tide celebrates the manifestation of Christ, we re- the, the traditional office of Matins reads through these epistles of St. Paul all through, from beginning at Romans all the way through. And we can also see that likely the, the canonization of the Bible happened after the liturgy was established. As, as Scott Hahn says, the, the New Testament was a sacrament before it was a book or a part of the Bible. And so what we see in this early Roman liturgy of reading through the epistles of St. Paul is what likely happened is the liturgical cycle was created first, of reading the epistles of Saint Paul, and then when the when the New Testament was canonized, the ordering of those books then was established, and it, because it was previously established by the liturgy, so the liturgy happened first, and then the book happened later. Um, so, the the office of matins reads through right through the epistles of Saint Paul as they appear in your Bible, starting with Romans all the way through Hebrews. Now, modern modern uh, commentators cast doubt on whether or not hebrews was written by saint paul but in the church's liturgy it is traditionally understood to be of saint paul it's very different because it was likely a sermon of saint paul uh that was adapted into a letter um and so that's likely why there's a different format uh, obviously a different format in the epistle to the hebrews um, but it is traditionally understood and believed and uh, proclaimed in the liturgy itself as the Epistle of Saint Paul, and so it's concluded in this this whole framework. Um, so, a, a couple couple practical notes here. To to, and I'll get back to the Canticle of Canticles, the Song of Songs. I'll get to back to that in a minute. Um, a couple practical notes here is that the Romans reading here begins during the twelve days of Christmas, so you 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 finish the epistle to the Romans during the 12 days of Christmas. And then Epiphany doesn't have any reading, but then on the first Sunday after Epiphany is when you begin First Corinthians. And something to note here, first of all, is something that was added, and this is adapted from the new, the, the, the actual, the new lectionary reads through all the Gospels with certain edits. Because the the new the new lectionary is deficient because it actually censors difficult passages, unfortunately. So, but it does start with it goes through the whole Gospels by and large, and it starts with Mark here. So this is adapted from the new lectionary. Um, so you start with Mark and you read through the entire the entire Gospel of Mark during Epiphany time, and a practical note to here here is that, um, the the Gospel of Saint Mark, is. a a pretty quick one it's very fast paced um and it's also very short so there's not a daily appointed reading for mark it's basically just appointed for sunday so you can read mark one through three on the first sunday and then on each of these sundays you can just read through that portion of saint mark or you can split it up throughout the week it's up to you um but then we have these portions of saint paul's uh gospel and this is also a very uh it's a good time because we've just been fasting and doing penance for Advent. And then this is, this is tide. This is, this is the feasting and celebration that we do through January in the, the darkest weeks of the year. We need to be feasting and rejoicing. And so the Bible reading is actually the easiest. It's really pretty much the easiest of the year because it's the shortest and it's also the most familiar portions of the Bible that you are already familiar with reading uh, in the epistles in the Holy Mass. But if you've never read through an entire epistle of St. Paul, you're in for a treat because it's it's pretty remarkable to read through the entire thing as a whole letter, as a whole message, instead of the little pericopes that you get at Holy Mass. Uh, in particular, if you're reading the Dewey Reams version, uh, it really comes out the Catholic nature of St. Paul's writings. Because we know that the Protestant heretics abused and abused St. Paul to promote their heresies. But when you read the Dewey Reims version, it's really translating that in a way that is the most Catholic way of looking at it because it follows the Latin Vulgate. Now, we've, we've talked about this previously, but the importance of that Latin Vulgate, and I don't have my book to show the screen. Oh, right, here it is. Um, this is what I go over in much more detail in my book, Introduction to the Holy Bible, Um, but the importance of the Latin Vulgate and why the Latin Vulgate is so critical for following in translations, because it is the tradition, the early church tradition of how the Greek is translated. And that's why, because the Dewey Reims follows the Latin as a guide to translate the Greek, the Dewey Reims is the most accurate in terms of its Catholic nature. The most conspicuous example, one of the examples I give in the book is Titus chapter 1. When St. Paul writes to Titus, he says, I left you in Crete to ordain priests. I left you in Crete to ordain priests. And, you know, obvious, ov- obvious Catholic passage here. Um, but unfortunately, because of the effect of heretical translations, um, I've even, I've heard of, I, have, I know somebody who grew up Catholic, for example, and then he read the New Testament. He read a heretical Protestant translation of the New Testament and that convinced him to become a protestant and so it really has quite an effect the the the, the way these things are translated and i i definitely find that the dewey reams challenger challoner is the best in terms of a catholic reading of saint paul um another example is the uh the famous passage of second thessalonians when saint paul says hold to the traditions which we taught you whether by word or epistle, which is a clear reference to oral tradition and and its binding character. But the, the one of the most popular Protestant translations, the New International Version, actually mistranslates this passage and says, hold to the teachings, not the traditions. And so this is just another way that the Protestants twist the scriptures wittingly or unwittingly. Uh, now, this is... This text, in particular, right here, this is the uh, this is the other uh, English Bible that we definitely recommend, which is the excuse me, the second Catholic edition RSV. Um, this is put out by Scott Hahn and Curtis Mitch, published by Ignatius Press. Uh, there are deficiencies in the English Trent, the text itself. I think, in certain ways, it's not as good as the dewey leavening Challoner but the 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 plus side is that the the english is more modern and thus easier to understand in any of those passages where the dewey reams is a little bit older english that's just more difficult so that's sort of the the plus and minus here the plus especially of this this version here is that the study notes are the best study notes you can find period Uh, because they really utilize a multifaceted approach to both bringing the patristic reading of the Holy Scripture, bringing the insights of the historical critical method, while ditching any of the heretical nature of the historical critical method. Uh, you know, archaeological insights, historical insights that we've had since the great commentator Cornelius Alapide. Um, and also, not only that, but also bringing in its, its apologetic nature, because as, as we know, Scott Hahn was a Protestant pastor, And so he brings a lot of the apologetic nature of it as well. So I definitely recommend this for study notes, but you can also rely on some of the older Catholic commentaries as well, like Hadock. Also, when you get into the Gospels, without a doubt, the best commentary of the Gospels is the Catena Aurea by St. Thomas Aquinas, which is just just a, a string of all the patristic thought regarding the Gospels. You can get this in a four-volume set from Preserving Christian Publications. You can also get it for free on the IPATA app, too. Um, there's also Cornelius Alapide has his entire— most actually, most of his New Testament translation is uh, in English, fortunately. Uh, but uh, you can also get that on I- IPATA for free. So uh, let's go back to the screen here real, real quick here. Um, another practical note here about this period of the Bible reader is that Epiphany Tide is variable, as we know. So this year, there are only four Sundays after Epiphany. So, then, so, so you have a choice here. You can either read through all of the Epistles of St. Paul and sort of just crunch them all in and, uh, by the by, the end of the fourth Sunday. So you've got this whole two-week spread here that you need to finish, or, or if you want, you can finish it before Septuagesima. Um, if you don't want to finish it before Septuagesima, you can always finish it on the fifth and sixth Sundays after Epiphany resumed, that take place in November. This happens every year if you're if you're familiar with the Roman rite every once in a while you have six sundays after epiphany but usually you don't uh, and that's why we put right here during the octave of christmas you have you're reading song of songs and like i said i will get back to that but song of songs is quite short there's only eight chapters in song of songs and you're just reading one chapter per day so what you can do here is you can you can if there's only four sundays after epiphany like there is this year you can kind of get a leg up on St. Paul and just start reading as much as you can during this period, to try to get it done by the fourth Sunday uh, by by really the end of the fourth Sunday after Epiphany, and because then set to adjacent begin, begins, and once we get into Lent, it's a lot more rigorous because Lent is rigorous, obviously. So we got more Bible reading, so that's when we start the Torah. So the the office of matins begins genesis we go genesis exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy joshua and judges so by by pentecost by the time after pentecost we've read through all those books and we're entering into first samuel aka first kingdoms so uh so this is what so it's up to you you can either do um you can do those resumed i i think that one practical tip here is that um, during November, there is a lot of hardcore reading too. So you have first and second Maccabees in November, you have the minor prophets, you've got Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a very, very difficult prophecy to read through. It's very long. So I prefer to, and it's also more logical to just get through all the Epistles of St. Paul now. So I definitely prefer to do all the Epistles of St. Paul now. Uh, so that then you can you you so this year you're going to have two extra weeks in November where you have no Bible reading, so then you can just catch up on anything you're, you're behind on in November. So it's it's totally up to you uh, what you do with that, but that's that's just a practical aspect of this. So let's talk a little bit about the content here because uh, I want to just touch on the Song of Songs because the Song of Songs is a very unique text of sacred scripture. Um, and the, it is, it brings out the, it is, it is an eight chapter song breathed by the Holy Spirit in praise of the marital embrace. Now, here's where we need to get into, again, the four senses of scripture. We talked about the four senses of scripture. The first one is the literal, and then we have the typological, the anagogical, um, the tropological from there. But th- everything is based on the literal sense. And this here's where I want to bring out Dietrich von Hildebrand here, reading from his text, the encyclical the Encyclical Humana Vitae, A Sign of Contradiction. Now, Dietrich von Hildebrand was, um, I, as I say many times, I'm a, I'm a disciple of Dietrich von Hildebrand. Um, I definitely believe he's a doctor of the church in the 20th century. And um, we haven't get, gotten deeper, deeper into his all of his thought on meaning of Catholic, but we will. Um, but one of the things that he's famous for is his development of Trent's teaching on merit, matrimony, um, which ultimately led to uh, Carol Voiti was theology of the body um, and further development of this. But one of the interesting things about this text of Song of Songs is that. It is we need to understand that the analogical uh, the um, ty- typological senses of Scripture are based on the literal sense of Scripture. So you, you can't really have you have David and Goliath, you have David and Goliath, which are a type of Jesus and Satan. But we have to first have the literal sense of David and Goliath before we can even get. So we have to have a historical event that actually happened you know, David and Goliath, and then we can get to the typological sense. Um, Now, the typological sense and these things that bring out Christ in the scripture are are very much, we we can say that that's the real sense. That's sort of the real purpose that the Holy Spirit spoke these words. Totally, you know, granted. But we have to also grant that it's based on the literal sense. Now, let me just read this, this passage here from Dietrich von Hildebrand. This is from this text, page 11. "...if we wish to understand the nature of spousal love, this glorious heritage of paradise, and the God-willed, valid aspect of the sexual sphere, we should read the Song of Songs open-mindedly. We should not think of the analogical meaning, but take it in its original, literal sense. Then we can breathe the atmosphere of this love." and see the sublimity of bodily union when experienced as the ultimate God-given mutual self-donation. And, when we have grasped the beauty of the literal sense, we should consider the implication of the fact that the liturgy uses it as an analogy for the relation of the soul to God, and uses it in the office of the Blessed Virgin. Should it not be clear that only something that is noble on the human level can be used and as an analogy for the supernatural relation of the soul to Christ? Does the sacred author use this relationship, or why does the sacred author use this relationship, i.e. spousal love, and not that of friendship, such as the one uniting David and Jonathan, end quote. So what von Hildebrand is trying to get at here is that one, there is a a prelapsarian union because God gave the command to be fruitful and multiply before the fall, and so there is actually a prelapsarian sort of redeemed, literal sense of the marital embrace, which becomes the typological um, picture of the union of the soul to God. So, and, and this is used in, so in, in a more general sense is, is the song of songs as all the commentators, the patristic commentators bring out the fact that this is the, the meaning of the song of songs, the, the higher meaning, the spiritual meaning, the, the typological meaning is the wedding of the bridegroom Christ with the bride, the, uh, the church. But, even more deeper than that, it's the wedding of God himself with every single soul. And that's why the, um, the spiritual writers use the soul in a feminine sense, because everybody's soul is feminine towards God in this sense, in this spiritual, analogical sense. Um, and then it's also used in the office of the Blessed Virgin Mary, because Our Lady is the spouse of the Holy Spirit. So all of these higher meanings however, are based on the very literal meaning that this is about the marital embrace. In a prelapsarian and redeemed sense, in Christ, of holy matrimony, which developed out of the Council of Trent is understood to be a a chaste union of self-donation of one's body and heart and soul to one's spouse. And so there is a higher and redeemed ver, uh, vision that is given in the Song of Songs of the marital embrace, which is considered apart from any sort of fallen version of that. And we today we're surrounded by this fallen, corrupted version of the marital embrace. Whether that's whether that's totally removed from marriage in, in terms of the impurity and, and the wickedness and the uh, degradation of fornication or adultery or any of those sins, but even in the in, even in the marital embrace itself, what, in marriage, if that is denigrated in any way, in, in any sort of impure pollution of that embrace, in any way, whether that's through contraception, the evil of contraception, or some other way that it can be corrupted within marriage, uh, in the Song of Songs, we're giving this this. Um, Vision this sublime vision of the marital embrace through sacred scripture by the words of the Holy Ghost himself, um, and what Hildebrand brings out here, and and how he 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 contrasts this with the the sublime friendship of David and Jonathan, in the fact that even outside, even in, even in a Josephite marriage, so in a Josephite marriage, the spouses make a vow of continence. So they, they choose not to have children because they make a vow of continence. So they never this is this is what um uh Saint Henry the Second, for example, had a Josephite marriage with his wife, the Emperor. the so Emperor Saint Henry II. He had a mar- uh, he had a Josephite marriage with his uh his spouse. So they never had children because they never had the marital embrace. Uh and this is what um Saint uh uh the I, I'm forgetting the other Zelly and uh, Martin, Martin, the Martins, um, the the parents of Saint uh, Therese of Lisieux. I'm sorry, sorry to all the devotees of Saint Therese. I'm, I've never really been a devotee of, of her spirituality, so. But I know that her parents dis- considered having a Josephite marriage. So, any in any case, the point I'm trying to say is that even in a Josephite marriage, there is such a there is such a thing as spousal love, spousal self donation, which is deeper than the friendship of david and jonathan because there is a spousal a spousal self-donation even apart from the marital embrace the the wedding of one's heart to the heart of one spouse which becomes this sublime vision of the wedding of god to the soul and, and the, the spousal relationship of the holy spirit to the virgin mary so I think what Song of Songs, the great value of Song of Songs in our time, especially with the great development of the of Trent's teaching on marriage, that it's come out of the 20th century for Dietrich von Hildebrand and Saint John Paul II, and others, um, is elevating and, and drawing forth the riches that God has that the Holy Spirit has placed in this text of Song of Songs. Uh, one of the inter- I mean, one of the things is that that I think that the Church has not drawn these riches out of Song of Songs for a number of reasons. One is that the heresies against the, of, against the family have never really appeared in uh, all their ugly ugliness as they appear today. I mean, there's always been fornication, adultery, and things like that, but there's never been such a grotesque deformation of marriage as there is in our day. And so that's one of the reasons why I think the Holy Spirit is bringing these riches out of the Song of Songs now. Um, there's also the aspect of that uh, patristic and monastic commentators, uh, don't want to dwell on those things. I mean, they don't want to, they don't want to dwell on the literal sense of song of songs. Uh, why would you, I mean, you're, you're, you've made a vow of chastity and you don't even want to think about those things. I mean, this is like, I remember, um, I remember the, the talk from father Ripperger, he actually mentions, he's like, this is a very, this is a topic that I don't even want to talk about at all. This is like the, I mean, and this is, um, St. Alphonsus says the same thing as moral theology. It's like, this is is the subject that I don't want to talk about at all, but I have to nevertheless. Like there's a, you know, there's a great reluctance to talk about the literal sense of Song of Songs. It's completely understandable. If you've made a monastic vow, you don't want to think about that at all. But for those of us who are married, you can read Song of Songs and freely think about the literal sense because you have, this marital relationship with your spouse. And because you have that marital relationship with your spouse, you can actually enter more deeply into the reality of the Song of Songs in this sense, uh, in a way that, you know, monastics uh, cannot and should not try to enter into. Um, But this is the, the sublime mystery of the Song of Songs. And the reason we have it at Christmas is because Christmas is... The union of the of God and man in one person. It is the wedding of God and man in one person, Jesus Christ, the Incarnation. And so all of these sub- sublime truths coming out of the Song of Songs and the fact that there is this deep marital meaning of the Holy Scriptures because, as we know that in the book of Revelation, the Scriptures end with the marriage of the bridegroom with uh, the bride, the the new Jerusalem, who's the bride, and the bridegroom Christ, and so Christ Himself in His very person is this marriage of God and man, the union of God and man in one person, um, and so and because and it comes from the spousal relationship of the Holy Ghost to the Virgin Mary, um, and not only that we have the spousal relationship of Joseph and Mary, of course, understood in that Josephite way, in the fact that there is a spousal meaning to spousal love, even in a Josephite marriage. And that's what makes it so profound, is that even if it's removed from the carnal reality of the marital embrace, it's still this much more sublime union of spousal love, of spousal hearts than any kind of friendship can ever be. So this is the uh, sublime dignity of the Song of Songs, as von Hildebrand mentions. It's used the song of the diff, different different versicles of the Song of Songs are used in the office of the Virgin Mary, uh, because they're the words of the Holy Ghost spoken to the Virgin Mary regarding the the sublime dignity of the beauty of her holiness, the beauty of her holiness, and this is what the Holy Ghost says in the Song of Songs that. He says uh, the the words, the Holy Ghost says of the Virgin Mary, you know, my fair one, come thou away with me, all these things, speaking and praising the Virgin Mary for the beauty of her holiness. And this is only understood uh, in this highest dignity, in this spiritual realm. Um, But it begins with this literal sense. So hope that helps. I know that's a, this is sort of a, it's a short book, but it's a difficult book because it's so uh, carnal in a sense, uh, in, in, in the best sense of that word, you know, it's a carnal in terms of its, you know, um, poetic spiritual nature of the marital embrace. So I hope that helps. Uh, I hope this, these sort of practical steps helps with all those things. In any event, let's, let's offer up an Ave to ask our lady to make us worthy to receive all the graces of Christmas tide, to celebrate worthily our Lord in his, incarnation, and to prepare ourselves in this celebration for ultimately Septuagesima, that we can we can feast rightly with great joy, with spiritual joy in the Holy Spirit, and we can have rest from all of our penances of Advent. We can have rest so that we can Prepare ourselves for greater penances during Lent. Let's pray. No me patris et spiritus sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum. Benedicta tu mulieribus et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Iesus. Santa Maria, Mate Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus. Nunquid in hora mortis nostrae. Amen. Our Lady of Victory, pray for us. Mary, Queen of the Home, pray for us. Saint Joseph, Terror of Demons, pray for us. Saint Anthony of the Desert, pray for all clergy and seminarians amen. Jesus is king. Amen.